According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 8 this morning as we get started. Luke chapter 8. As always, our growth comes through the Scriptures. Luke chapter 8. First four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As we're looking at, we're harmonizing all four of the Gospels in our Life of Christ series. We are dealing with episode 23 in the Galilean ministry and uh, almost through the Galilean ministry. It's downhill from here as we uh, are proceeding. We're approaching uh, another uh, Passover coming up, which will mark another year gone by in the life of Christ. Of course, he is crucified on the Passover, so marking the Passover feast is a good way for establishing the chronology of his ministry. All right, Luke chapter 8. Let's read verses 1 through 3. Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. All right, it's a short episode, three verses, not a lot to it, but we do want to get the details on it. And uh, we've done so for the last two weeks, actually, and this morning we'll be able to wrap this up and be able to look at some other information that pertains to their ministry opportunity here, contributing to their support out of their private means. Before we begin any of this, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that each believer is uh, prepared to study God's Word. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before your presence this morning and we thank you for the privilege we have to assemble together. Father, we thank you for the word of God that you've supplied for us. Uh, Father, sometimes we lose track of the fact that it was written thousands of years ago. It is alive and powerful. It is profitable. It is, it is effective in our daily life, day by day and moment by moment. We thank you, Father, that we can study to show ourselves approved. And as we live your word, Father, we understand that we are living a life that is pleasing to you and gives glory to our Savior. We ask this morning that you would set aside distractions and give us concentration, open the eyes of our understanding, and give us ears to hear. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, there are a total of seven issues that we're gleaning out of this, uh, out of this passage, and I'm not going to go back to review those, but the fifth one was our look at the twelve. Hoi dodica is the Greek expression. Hoi dodica. Dodica is just the number 12. Uh, you put a the in front of it and they become the 12. All right. And it refers to the 12 apostles, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and the other eight. Um, I'm not too good with lists. So if, if I hunted them down, I could eventually name all 12. Matthew, Simon, Jude, not Iscariot, Jude Iscariot, uh, 12 of them. We know who they are. They're in the listings in Matthew chapter 10, Acts chapter 1, and, and elsewhere. But we wanted to make clear that when we identify an expression such as the 12, that that is a significant statement, that those 12 are unique among all the apostles. They are the apostles of the Lamb. And that's, uh, that sets them apart from other apostles that will come across in the book of Acts and in the epistles. In other words, Paul is an apostle 
but he's not one of the twelve. Barnabas is an apostle, but he's not one of the twelve. James is an apostle. Uh, Judas, the brother of our Lord, is an apostle, but they're not part of the twelve. They're church-age apostles. These twelve are uh, apostles even prior to the church-age getting started. And so there was uh, an aspect of the study I wanted to really emphasize under that. We'll have more to say on the apostles as uh, the study progresses. Now, under point six, we're looking at these certain women Three of them we know by name, but there were many others, we're told. So we've got Mary Magdalene, and that's the one that gets all the attention, you know, with Da Vinci Code and all the other uh, garbage that's out there. And and really, she's been, for centuries, she's been a focus of of attention because of the different Catholic traditions and different things about her, specifically identifying her with the, the harlot from the previous chapter and so forth. There's no reason to do that. And there's every reason not to do that. When Mary Magdalene is introduced here in chapter 8, the introduction comes in verse 2 as if it's a brand new character. Somebody that we've not previously been introduced to in the text. And if she's the same as the woman that we were introduced to back in chapter 7, then the introduction here in chapter 8 is is totally inappropriate. So the indication being that since this is her debut, this is her first indication Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, that she is not the woman from chapter 7. And and I think only a, a hardcore Catholic that has to insist on the infallibility of papal declarations would continue to put her in chapter 7 when she doesn't really belong there. Uh, but other than their names, uh, Joanna, we know who her husband was. We know that he had a position of responsibility in, in Herod's court. Uh, that says more about her husband than it says about her. We don't know anything about her. And uh, Susanna, we know nothing about Susanna other than her name. And then it says many others. And how many is many? Well, it's more than one or two. It's more than a couple. It's more than a few. It's, it's many. And we've got these general terms. We talk about a couple, a few, some, many. Okay, It's the same in Greek or any other language. It's, it's more than a handful. I guess in Texan, Texas we'd say, uh, oh, I don't know, there's got to be a Texas expression that would communicate this. But however many there are, a dozen, who knows? Okay. I think the impact, though, on what they're doing is significant. And I won't go back through the subpoints on these, but the one I do want to highlight was D. Now, the church hasn't started. We, we, we can't overlook that enough as we teach the Gospels. You and I live in the church. We are a part of the bride of Christ, the body of Christ in the church. We've been in this stewardship since the day of Pentecost in 33 AD. Uh, We're accustomed to the church because that's where we are. We're accustomed to having spiritual gifts. We're accustomed to having local churches, pastor teachers, and all these other things. A completed Bible. They didn't have that in those days. They had an Old Testament, but they didn't have spiritual gifts, and they weren't a part of the body of Christ. Now, these women are in this condition. They're Old Testament believers. Church hasn't started yet. And they don't have a spiritual gift like we have today. All right? My gift is pastor-teacher. Your gift is whatever it is. Every believer has a gift, and we'll review that this morning. But the ministry they have, the ministry they have, if this was a text that was in the New Testament, in other words, if it was in the epistles, we would view this ministry as the ministry of uh, service, the ministry or the gift of server minister. And so I put this under point D in your notes. This gift of server minister. These women were not members of the church. They will be 
after Acts chapter 2, when the church dispensation begins, assuming that they're still alive by then. I'm sure they are. Um, and they enter into the church, uh, but their ministry prefigures the dispensation of the church, spiritual gift of server ministry. I'm going to say more about that this morning, because I think it's the, it's, it's hard to say the most misunderstood gift, but it is misunderstood. Uh, it's largely, it's overlapped with the gift of helps. And, and it's so blended with the idea of the gift of helps that, practically speaking, we don't make any mental difference between a person with the gift of helps and a person with the gift of service. But they should be different they, because they're very different in their, in their etymology and they're very different in terms of their functions. So I'm going to spend, we're going to have the time today to do that because we're practically at the end of this, uh, of this material anyway. And as we have the time to go through it, I want to be able to review that particular gift because it's a, it's a huge blessing. It was a blessing for Jesus Christ in this chapter and it's a huge blessing for the church today. So we'll spend some time on that. Now, under point seven then, Christ was the one in ministry. He was the one in ministry. His disciples were in training. The twelve were in training. And so we see this. Verse 1 says he was going around from one city and village to another. Well, so were the twelve. So were the women. But the first verb that's mentioned is mentioned as a singular verb emphasizing that he was doing this. He was preaching. He was proclaiming. This was his ministry. It says the twelve were with him. But does it say that they were preaching and proclaiming? He was preaching and proclaiming. The attendant participles describing the activity of what he was doing as he was going around from one city and village to the other. But the twelve are with him. So as we outline this, he was the one in ministry, the twelve were in training, and the women were providing the logistical support. The women were supplying the logistical support. As we note at the end of verse 3, these many other women, what were they doing? They were contributing to their support out of their private means. Their support. Supporting Christ and his ministry. Supporting these twelve in their training. And even supporting themselves. Because they have their own operating expenses, travel expenses and so forth. In order to accompany Christ and the twelve and the things that happen there. All right? It seems that we don't want to neglect the external things that take place for ministry because they're needed. And the, the real obvious thing, of course, is the pastor in a local church because he stands in front of everybody and he teaches and, and all that. But all the other support functions are just as vital. They're just as necessary. They may be behind the scenes and we may, we may not pay attention to them. They may seem rather mundane, like uh, cutting the grass. Say, it needs to be done. Paying the light bill needs to be done. Taking out the trash, changing the diapers. I mean, everything that takes place from the from the nursery to the Sunday school to the to the physical property and so forth, it all needs to be done. And what we're trying to demonstrate is that those are not just earthly things; they are in fact ministry opportunities. They are sweet-smelling savors as as sacrifices before the Lord. They appear to be earthly, but they're spiritual as we understand it. We'll have more to say on that when we break down this gift in particular. So they're there serving a logistical support function. And hopefully, the more we teach this, the more we're going to recognize that a local church is a body. It is an interconnected body, and the pastor is just one part of that body, one member of that body, and there are, every member has a part to play. Every member contributes to the needs of the saints. And 
local churches where the pastor is the only gift in use or the only person who has the concept of service, those are unhealthy local churches when it comes right down to it. All right, the verb is diakoneo. Diakoneo. It's important that you get this down. I know I gave them to you last week, but we didn't spend the time looking at the, looking at the verses and really discussing it. Diakoneo is the verb, actually, and then another verb, huparko. We'll talk about both of them here this morning. We'll discuss both of them here this morning. Now, we do this because there's details to be gleaned out of the original languages, things that, well, they, they may not have any issue in translation. There may, there's nothing wrong with how they're translated here in, in, in the sense that they were uh, serving or that they were uh, contributing to their support. Those are acceptable translations, but there's more detail that we can glean from the Greek and from the larger context for how these words are used. For example, diakonel is not our only word for servant. A diakonos is not our only word for servant. We've also got doulos. In fact, doulos is a much more common word. That's the word for, for slave, bondservant or slave. All right. These women aren't slaves. <laughs> All right. People who serve in a serving capacity in the local church aren't doing slave labor. Nursery might seem that way sometimes, but it's not slave labor. Okay. It should be a diakonos servant capacity. In fact, diakonos is even where we get the word deacon. Deacon's not even an English word. Deacon is a transliteration from the Greek diakonos. It's a Greek word that's been adapted into English. Uh, but diakoneo, if you think about the preposition dia, what is it that's the, the diameter of a circle? That's the line that goes through the circle. Dia, if you think diameter, if you think through, dia is a preposition that means through, and then uh, through the kanos, through the dust. A servant or a minister, someone who is, the, the, the imagery of, of diakoneo or diakonos is, is someone that's through the dust, that's crawling through the dust. or It's, 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 a, it's a dirty word, but it needs to be done. The, servant, uh, the service needs to be done. Now, the uses of diakoneo, by the way, if you have a Strong's Index and you like to use the Strong's Concordance, and you don't read Greek, then uh, the easiest way to find them is by their numbers. And uh, this is number 1247, to serve or to minister. But it's not a slave service. It is, you're going to see, it's going to be willful, voluntary, volitional service. Uh, not because you have to, but because you want to. Not only is it found in Luke 8.3, but three other places, four other places in the Gospel of Luke. Just hold your finger there, chapter 8. Turn over to chapter 10. We've got an application of it there in chapter 10 and verse 40. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was sitting, seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the... And there's diakoneo to do all the serving alone, then tell her to help me. A very well-known story. Mary and Martha, the two sisters. In fact, this is a pretty practical episode and a and, uh, pretty good chapter to get to in a, in a family class or a ladies' class and whatnot because the work never ends. The work never ends. There's always something else that could be done. And so given that, given that the work never ends and that there's always more to do and that you 
the, uh, the necessity to make a priority decision becomes the application here. Notice what the Lord tells her. The Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. The faithful ministry of diaconeo's service should not be either something for worry or for something to be bothered about. If it can't be done joyfully, don't do it. God loves the cheerful giver. You are worried and bothered about so many things. It's not that her service was wrong, it's that she was worried and bothered about it. But only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. In other words, Mary understood that, there's uh, yes, there's a need for the service, and it needs to get done, and it will get done. But at this particular moment, there's an opportunity to listen to Jesus Christ teaching Bible class. And so that's what she selects to do. And she prioritizes and says, now we'll take her a Bible class. I'll, we'll listen to what he's doing. When class is over, then we'll get to serving and washing dishes and whatever else they were doing, fixing meals or whatnot. I, I recognize there's Jesus. There's these 12 fishermen. Most of them were fishermen. Um, probably, if they're anything like most guys, they eat a lot and they're slobs. You know? And so this kind of ministry was not the easiest but at least Mary had priorities and said, you know what, I'm going to go to Bible class first. We'll, we'll take care of the serving afterwards. Martha, though, was worried and bothered about it and uh, skipped Bible class in order to uh, whatever she was doing. Washing dishes, fixing a meal, laundry, who knows what she was doing. But she was left serving. So that's the term. Uh, in chapter 12, it's used. Chapter 12 and verse 37. Here's the wedding feast and the invitation. And then it says, Blessed are those slaves. Now that's the doulos, bondservant. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. The verb to wait is diakoneo. A diakonos is not just a servant, but even a table waiter. He's not a slave. He doesn't have to, but he wants to. All right. The term is dear to my heart. I used to be a table waiter back in my high school days, before college, before the army, before the sheriff's department, before the pastorate. But after the grocery store and after the paper routes. I think those are, yeah, <laughs> my different careers. All right. Waiting tables. And the willingness to do that, the humility to do that, is quite interesting. And in this case, it's a masculine role that's doing it. I don't want you to get the impression that, that women are the only ones that, that have this kind of service or this kind of servant ministry. Men have this ministry as well, if, as evidenced by the, the term deacon. The term diakonos is a masculine term, and uh, the, uh, the issues there, it's not limited to female uh, service. In other words, the men, Christ and the disciples are out there ministering and the women are, you know, in the kitchen or fixing meals and whatnot. It, we don't want to take this in any kind of sexist way. Chapter 17, Luke 17. Luke 17. The... Um, this is in the midst of a class he was teaching on faith. He says uh, in verse 7, Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat? 
Remember, it's the slave that's out there. And he's, he comes in. Is he immediately going to be seated there to, to eat? Or will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not think the, he does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So it, it uses the, the language of a slave and the expectation of not only the, the field slave work in verse 7, but then the table service in verse 8. And the fact that slaves are not uh, entitled to being thanked. Uh, slavery is the institution that it is, and they work because they're slaves. All right, chapter 22. Some of this is hard for us because our culture is one that has done away with slavery for over a century. Luke chapter 22. Here they are. This is the night in which he's betrayed. And he's giving them the Lord's Supper. He's giving them the communion service. He's talking about his betrayal. Tonight he's going to get arrested. Through the night he's going to get beaten. He's going to go to his trials. Tomorrow he's going to be hung on a cross. He's going to die for our sins. Meanwhile... They're gathered in the upper room having a dinner, and there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. So you see where their priorities are and how they're not exactly catching on to what it is he's telling them. So there's Peter and James and John and Andrew and all these other guys, and they're arguing you know, about who's the greatest. Matthew might say you know, he gave up his lucrative uh, tax-collecting job and everything else. Simon the Zealot, you know, was uh, able to argue for his uh, guerrilla warfare uh, campaigns and uh, to attack Rome and things like that. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant, the diakonos, diakoneo. All right. Who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Now, typically, if you're looking at that in earthly terms, the the person that's being served is considered the greater and the person that's doing the service is considered the lesser. He's the one that's that. I mean, he's the one that's getting paid to do the serving. The guy that's being served is not getting paid to be served. The waiter isn't paying the diner to here. Let me let me let me bring you food, and let me pay you for being my my the person I'm feeding, and I'll give you a tip for eating my food. No, he brings you the food. He gets paid. He gets the tip. And yet, in God's divine way of thinking, service is exalted. He says, "I'm among you as one who serves." Jesus Christ didn't come to conquer the world and rule the world. He came to serve. He came to die on the cross and that the world through him might be saved. And that's the attitude we're to have. And even when you are in a leadership position, pastor of a church, deacon, Sunday school teacher, whatnot, if you're in a position of authority, it still is with the attitude of service. Because no authority is designed to be dictatorial or, or tyrannical. It's always designed to be of service, the servant-mindedness of the shepherd, the servant-mindedness of the Sunday school teachers, the deacons, and so forth. When the servant heart is gone, the, uh, the priority is misplaced in any application of authority. 
So that's the verb there. Diakoneo, to serve or to minister. And that's what these women were doing. They were ministering, they were serving, but they weren't ministering to the crowds. They weren't teaching Bible classes. They weren't proclaiming the Gospel. They were ministering to Christ so that He could minister to the people. See? So that He wasn't... uh, Spending, uh, you know, 40 hours a week in his carpentry trade, trying to earn enough money to put food on the table. He had time to teach. He had time to study. He had time to travel. Because they were working. They were supporting. They were providing the meals and all the rest. That's the whole purpose for a local church that says, we're tired of our pastor working 40 hours a week outside the church. We want to provide a love offering a grace, on a grace basis. We want to support the pastor's family. We want to make sure he's not starving. We want to make sure he's, he's fed and clothed. And, and, and we're so blessed around here. They even said, here, go buy a house. Because we want you full-time to be studying the Word, teaching, feeding the flock, and without being distracted by all these other things. Now, the means by which they were supporting them was out of their private means. And this one is a little bit awkward. The verb doesn't necessarily communicate what is taking place. The verb is huparco. Huparco. That's your second one there. H-U-P-A-R-C-H-O. Huparco. Right there. And huparco um, is, is, is an authority word uh, to rule, to have dominion. And, if you think, and, and it's used as a participle, uh, so it becomes a noun. But it means something you have authority over. Right? And that's your possession. That's your thing. That's your, uh, your means, your wealth. Uh, if, you, if it's yours, this is, this is my pen. Actually, I don't know if it is or not. But I'm in possession of it. Kind of showed up one day. You know, Warren might have left this up here on a Sunday night or something. Like these paper clips. I bet you this is evidence of Warren on a Sunday night. Well, let's just say, though, this is my pen. Because why? Well, I'm in possession of it. I have authority over this pen. And if the cap stays on, it's because I say it stays on. If the cap comes off, it's because I wanted it off. If I write with it, if I draw with it, whatever I do with it, it's under my control because I'm in possession. I have authority over this pen. All right? That's the idea. That's why you have an authority word that when used as a participle becomes a term for property, possessions, and private wealth. A little bit awkward, and it has a hard time translating from Greek to English, but it's a pretty standard term in the Greek, actually. If, if it's yours, that means you have authority over it. It's under your control. And so it becomes kind of a noun at that point for property, possessions, or private means. Again, we've got a sample of places in the Scripture where we can get a flavor for it, starting with Luke 8.3, which is the text we're studying, but also Luke 11.21. We won't necessarily have to look at all of these, but we, we do want to get a flavor for it. Luke 11:21, and I want you to see because some of these are important principles. This is why a believer can't be demon possessed. Uh, it says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. And that word possessions there is our participle from huparco, the things under your authority, things under your control. In other words. The thief isn't going to break into your house and take your things away because it's being guarded. The strong man, fully armed. Verse 22, when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him in all his armor on which he has relied and distributes his plunder. Okay. Now this comes, and this is common sense. 
If someone's going to break into your home they, and you're there and awake and armed, well, then they're going to have to deal with you first before they can take anything from you. Okay? And this is, by the way, in a context where he's talking about casting out demons, and this is the, the nature of it. And we have, each one of us has the Holy Spirit, the strong man. If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. So how is some demon going to come into your house and overpower the Holy Spirit? See, logic says that can't happen, which is this is part of the overall evidence that demonstrates that believers in Jesus Christ are not subject to, uh, to demon possession. The next chapter over actually has three uses in chapter 12, verse 15. He said to them, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions? That's the world's way of looking at things. He who dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> right? You measure your success based on your things. That's a worldly way of looking at things. Looking around and saying, Soul, I'm well pleased with all my possessions. In fact, my barns are too small. I've got to tear down my barns to build bigger barns to hold all my stuff. Okay? That's not life. That's the world's way of looking at it. That's not God's way of looking at it. That term, possessions. Which is why, if you have the grace attitude towards your possessions, you realize they're not yours anyway. All that you have is a gift of grace. They're the fathers. He gave them to you. He's entrusted you with them. And it may be that He's trusted you with an abundance so that you can be the instrument of blessing for ministry opportunities. These women from Luke 8 understand that. That they have an abundance of their possessions. And they have an opportunity to support Christ and His disciples in a wonderful way. A way that others can't. But they can. Because they have the, uh, the wealth to do that. The grace perspective to make use of their wealth in that manner. Verse 33 of the same chapter. Sell your possessions. Now this is uh, in the context of... Uh, some different things. Remember, the rich young ruler came to him and wanted to know. He thought he'd done everything he could to get to heaven, and the Lord found a way that uh, something he was not willing to do. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes nor uh, near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The attitude is you can accumulate wealth here on earth or you can accumulate wealth in heaven, which is the one that's going to last for all eternity. Uh, verse 44. Uh, Truly I will say he will put him in charge of all his possessions. That's a reward context. If you're found faithful when the master returns, you will be placed in charge. We've discussed eternal rewards in the past. Probably are overdue for a series on rewards. Things we can anticipate when we're in glory. What uh, responsibilities are we going to be given in heaven? What are we going to be entrusted to do? I mean, we just float on a cloud and play a harp forever? Well, to me, it's kind of boring. What do we do for all eternity? You know, the Muslims, they got to figure it out. You get there and they hand you 72 virgins and yeah, that's, that's not heaven. Well, what are we supposed to do when we get to heaven? All right. We need to do a series on that, get some teaching. All right. There's more, but we'll let those go. Uh, six, Luke 16.1, Luke 19.8, Acts 4.32. Um, let's look at... Let's look at Acts. Acts 4.32. We'll skip the other ones there in Luke for now. 
Now, when we understand the context of the early church, believers are being persecuted. The Jews were confiscating their property. They were being imprisoned for their faith in Jesus Christ. And because of that, there was a great need to provide for those whose homes had been confiscated, whose uh, wealth had been plundered, and so forth. And so what they did here, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Now, there are groups today that will use this verse as authority to promote some kind of a Christian communism kind of approach, that we all should go live in a commune and we all, you know, we just have a common thing. We live in common houses with common, nobody owns anything in particular. And they fail to understand the historical context for why under persecution this was necessary. You know, we're not living under those times of persecution today and there's no call for this kind of thing today, but are we headed for these days in the future? And if we do reach those days in the future, how are we going to respond? First uh, Corinthians thirteen three. Here's uh, the great love chapter. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So you can give your possessions, but if you're doing it for the false motivation, if you're not doing it because of love, it's not worth anything. And then finally, Hebrews ten thirty four. I love Hebrews 10. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Anything that you suffer in temporal life, truly suffer, mind you, will be repaid in glory. You cannot lose. No one who trusts in the Lord will ever be disappointed. You can't outgive God. You can never be... Uh, you never lose when you're truly serving the Lord. Now, the attitude there of truly serving is important. I think a lot of people today think they're suffering for Jesus, and it's not because we have such prosperity in our land, and we have such a, there's there's no persecution necessarily. There's there might be some ridicule. You might encounter some uh, some attitude. Uh, you may even have in the workplace. I encountered hostile supervisors and but it wasn't persecution in any respect all right so there's the idea of out of their private means out of their private means out of their possessions that they considered you know what do i really need these other things now let's take some time in what we have remaining this morning to review this aspect on gifts this is from the study we did in Basic Doctrinal Studies on Spiritual Gifts. And uh, we noted that some of the gifts were temporary. Tongues, miracles, healing, apostle. Uh, nine of the gifts were temporary gifts. They, they no longer function today. But 11 of the gifts are permanent gifts. They do function today. Including faith. The gift of faith, or I call it faith worker, because faith without works is dead. The believer with a gift of faith is expected to put that faith to work. Okay, Faith worker is not miracle worker or faith healer or charlatan. We understand that, not charismatic in any way. But it is somebody who lives his faith in a powerful way. In a powerful way. A greater proportion of faith than other believers. The gift of teacher. 
the gift of teacher. It's not pastor teacher, it's teacher. There are many teachers that aren't pastor teachers, and a local assembly would need any number of teachers. We've got teachers that teach in our Sunday school. We've got other teachers that teach uh, in my absence, for example, or other teachers that teach outside of a local church. They come to the local church. This is where they're trained and equipped, but they've got their own teaching ministry elsewhere in a college campus or in a nursing home or on the Internet or wherever they happen to be. They can find a teaching ministry in uh, either in the church or out of the church and so forth. The gift of helps or helper. And we're all supposed to be helpful, but certain believers are spiritually gifted, that is, they are empowered with the Holy Spirit in order to coordinate and provide assistance for ministry. Now, this is what the gift of helps is about. The gift of helps comes alongside and works in the same objectives as the person, the other person in that ministry. Believers with this gift manifest the Holy Spirit through an extraordinary grace enablement that complements other believers' giftings in the coordinated achievement of work. It could be in a logistical support function or it could be in a ministry function. In other words, you're not a teacher, but you have the gift of helps. And so you work hand in hand with the teacher in order to teach. Maybe you're crafty-minded. Not deceptive, but arts and craftsy, okay? You can do things with cloth and with material and you sew things and you draw things or you're an artist and so you're not actually teaching the class but you're helping to create the the handouts or the visual aids or puppets or whatever you're doing. That's a helping ministry. Uh, You might even have a musical application in terms of helps. You're not teaching the class but you're leading the singing or you're you're playing the piano or whatever it's a it's a helping capacity in which case you're helping a teacher you might be helping an evangelist you might be helping a pastor you might be helping any of the gifts any of these 11 gifts might need help in which case you're contributing by helping to get that work done all right administrator one who guides, steers, or pilots. And you've got to have leadership. You've got to have administrative leadership in so many different areas. Now, the server minister, that's what we're getting to. The server minister is not the gift of helps. We often think of it in the terms of helps. But it's not helps. Helps is what I just finished describing. The server minister may not be any... He's going to be of assistance just by virtue of what he does, but he's not actively helping, say, he's not helping in getting the class taught. He's doing something for you so that you can get the class taught. But he's not helping in getting the class taught. That's the difference between helps and service. All right? Or ministry. The server minister. Romans 12.7 says, If service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching. So we're talking about this service in his serving. If service in his serving. Simply stated, a servant serves. He's not helping, he's serving. So, in the illustration I just had, if you've got a teacher, you've got a helper, But the helper is actually involved in the teaching process because he's helping the teacher. The server won't be involved in the teaching process or the evangelism process or the pastoring process or the 
uh, exhortation process, if he's, if he's serving an exhorter, or whatever gift he's serving, he's, he's not helping that process, he's blessing that person. And that person then engages in the process, if that makes sense. Let's look at some examples. Every believer is expected to serve or minister to every other believer in the body. However, believers with this particular gift manifest the Holy Spirit through an extraordinary grace enablement that not only serves but edifies in that personal service ministry. Tychicus is an example of such a faithful minister. You familiar with Tychicus? Ephesians 6.21. Paul is in prison. And he writes these prison epistles. Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, these are prison epistles. He's in prison. He's concerned about the church at Ephesus. He can't just go to Ephesus and see how they're doing. Because he's in prison. I used to work in a jail. They frown on that. You know, an inmate would say, you know, excuse me, can I go home now? No. <laughs> when the judge says you can go, you can go. So he can't leave prison. So he writes a letter. And, of course, they didn't have email. You don't just shoot an email to Ephesus. Nothing travels faster than the fastest horse or ship, either horsepower or wind power. Somebody, when he, when he puts quill to, to parchment and he writes out the letter and he rolls it up and he seals the, the scroll, he has to hand it to somebody and somebody has to carry it to Ephesus. All right? From Rome to Ephesus. And so, uh, this is a journey that's going to take weeks. And Tychicus was the carrier. Tychicus carried Ephesus and he carried the letter to Philippi. Carried the letter to Colossae. All right? So here's Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. Now, what's Tychicus doing? Is he teaching Bible classes? Is he helping Paul be an apostle? He's ministering to Paul's needs. He's a courier. He's carrying letters. He's uh, updating people on information. Um, how I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. In other words, Tychicus can show up in, in a Bible class at Ephesus and give a report on the, Paul's latest trial or his current st uh, status or uh, his anticipated release date or his anticipated execution date or whatever else might be happening in Paul's life. And Tychicus is not... He's, he's not teaching Bible class. We would think of him as not having a, a uh, speaking role. He has a serving role. He's carrying letters. See. So there's an example. Uh, Colossians 4.7. Same guy. Different church. Different city. Colossae is up the river valley from Ephesus. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord. It's interesting. It uses... Adelphos for brother, Diakonos for servant, and also Dulos for bondservant. He will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, and that he may encourage your heart. So he's going to show up and give a missionary report. But he's not the one in ministry. He's just providing logistical support, service to Paul. Uh, another example would be Epaphroditus engaged in such personal service ministry, Philippians 2.25. Now, it's interesting is Epaphroditus at one point had been a pastor. 
and he had been the pastor for the church at Philippi, uh, but then traveled to, to minister to Paul's needs. He says in Philippians 2.25, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who was also your messenger, probably Engelos messenger, or apostle even. How about that? They use apostello there. And minister to my need. Minister to my need. Notice how the term minister becomes personal. Minister to Paul's need. This is what a servant minister does. Ministers to somebody else for their needs. Why? Well, because they're doing the Lord's work. Not to say that it's more important than what anybody else is doing, but they have a function, and now you have a function to bless them so that they can fulfill their function in an even greater way. Your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed, because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was sick to the point of death. Notice, God healed him. God had mercy on him, and not on me also, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. This is also, can I give you a side trip? This is also a huge clue into the fact that the gift of healing is done. Because if the gift of healing was still around, why didn't Paul just heal him? Paul had healed others. Paul had brought Eutychus back from the dead. Now here's Epaphroditus. He loves Epaphroditus, and he's sick to the point of death. The gift of healing is over with by this point, by the sixth decade of the church. Healing is done. It was a temporary gift in the early church. This and a couple other places. Trophimus, he left sick in Asia. And, and uh, Timothy's got a stomach ailment. And Paul says, you know, you should drink a little wine for your stomach condition. Uh, well, just heal him if, you got the, if you're an apostle with a gift of healing. So there's three big evidences in the New Testament for the gift of healing as a temporary gift. Anyway, there's Epaphroditus, the, the role of ministry, and it is a personal ministry to an individual. Generally speaking, in secular areas, in earthly details, circumstances and details of life. Now, there are Old Testament illustrations as well. They don't illustrate a gift because it's not part of the church and not part of spiritual giftedness. But we have these examples. Look at Joseph. What's Joseph doing? Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. He became his personal servant for Potiphar. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned and put in, he put in his charge. Why? Because Potiphar was so busy being the, the captain of Pharaoh's guard that these other details in his own house, he just put Joseph in charge of it. So Joseph paid the electric bill. Joseph made sure the trash was out on trash day. Joseph made sure that the lawn was mowed. Joseph made sure that the, the other servants were paid for and so forth. Joseph was in charge of everything in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar was free to, to serve Pharaoh, and Potiphar wasn't worried about um, you know, whether he paid his property taxes on time and things like that. Joseph took care of all that. Another example includes Joshua. Moses arose with Joshua, his servant. Moses went up to the mountain of God. Joshua was his servant. You think Moses pitched his own tent? Joshua set up the tent, rolled out the sleeping mat, washed the clothes, cooked the meals. Opportunity there to free Moses up for praying and teaching and ministering and writing the book of Genesis and, and everything else that Moses is doing right here. 
Okay. It's almost like um, when I went to Desert Storm. Um, yes, I carried weapons and had ammunition and engaged in the uh, invasion of Kuwait and all that other stuff. But that was really a minor part of what we did over six months. Mainly, I was the first sergeant's driver. So I did errands. I set up tents. I laid out cots. I got laundry done. I, did, uh, I didn't fix the vehicle. He knew better than that. <laughs> I had to do two tents. I had to do my first sergeant's tent and the captain's tent. Reason why was because the captain's driver did all the mechanical functions on the captain's vehicle and the first sergeant's vehicle. They realized how pathetic I was at anything mechanical. All right? I can drive it. I can put gas in it. Beyond that, I don't know how to keep a vehicle running. So Killian, my, my, my buddy Killian, he was the captain's driver, but he handled that vehicle and my vehicle. I was the first sergeant's driver. I didn't handle any vehicle, but I had to do double tent duty. I had to set up the captain's tent, the first sergeant's tent, their cots, their, their trunks, their gear, their uh, chemical sensors, everything else that we had in the, in the tents there. Why? Well, because the captain's busy. He's the company commander. The first sergeant's busy. And this frees him up. He's not, you know, setting up a tent, rolling out a sleeping bag, laying out a cot, and doing all that other stuff. So, here's Joshua. Now, think about it. Joshua, 40 years from now, is going to be in charge. He's going to be the general, after Moses dies, that leads Israel in battle and takes them into the land of promise. It's vital that we recognize that our leaders, if they can't be servants to start with, what kind of leader are they going to be? But if they can be servants to start with, think how that prepares them. Joshua, uh, Joseph was the same way. He was Potiphar's servant, but next thing you know, he's ruling Egypt. So we have these examples. Moses arose with Joshua, his servant. Other references to Joshua include Exodus 33:11. Mo, uh, when Moses returned to camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Numbers 11:28. Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth. The attendant of Moses from his youth. The attendant. Okay. Now this is the concept. This is the concept. All right. Gehazi is the example there. Second Kings 4, the example for Elisha. And Elisha said to Gehazi, his servant, called the Shunammite. And, uh, of course, Gehazi was a failure in a lot of ways. Um, chapter 5, we see Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God. So do you think Elisha's setting up his own tent? you think Elisha's cooking his own meals? Gehazi's taking care of those details so that Elisha can minister the word of God. Note also that Elisha filled this role while training under Elijah. In, in these chapters, Elisha is the prophet and Gehazi is his servant. But before Elisha was a prophet, he was a servant. He trained under Elijah. So he returned from following him and he took a pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of uh, the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. Ministered to him. Elisha served Elijah as a part of his training. See, right now we've got Cliff Beveridge. He's training to be a pastor, but he's serving as a deacon. And it's part of the training. It's part of the preparation. Someday he won't be a deacon anymore. 
He'll be a pastor himself. As the training is complete, when ordination takes place, he will no longer be a deacon. He'll be an ordained pastor teacher. We have the, we have the pattern there. But ministering to the person. Think in terms of personal ministry. This might be awkward because, um, I don't know, American 21st century prosperity type perspective might view this as being rather demeaning or might view this as being inferior, you know, cheapening of a person in their ministry. And yet you realize if this is what you're called to do and you're gifted to do it, you, you wouldn't be happy doing anything else. See, a pastor who knows he's a pastor, who's gifted to be a pastor, is, is never any more happy than when he's pastoring. Likewise, a teacher, likewise, any believer. When you know what your gift is and you're using your gift, you know you're in the will of God and you're serving and doing what you're supposed to be doing. So I think, sorry, I think if um, we understand what this role is, all right, uh, there's a lot of, well, if you're familiar with Baraka Church in Houston, right? You're familiar with Pastor Theme for 50 years. He'd been the pastor of Baraka Church in Houston before he, his recent medical retirement. All right? You know what I'm talking about? He had, for all of those years, an assistant. Not an assistant pastor, a personal assistant. You know who I'm talking about? Katie. Handled all his travel. All his arrangements, all the details, where he stayed, what he ate, all the arrangements for his uh, itinerary, everything imaginable. Traveled with him on a lot of those conference ministries and, and different things. All right? Um, there's other examples. Uh, <laughs> examples in the Philippines. Anytime Ralph LaRosa goes anywhere, there's 7,000 islands in the Philippines. They do a lot of travel. They get in a lot of boats. They go places. And anytime Ralph or Ralph and Cindy or whatever, if they're going from island to island, from place to place, uh, there's a man in his ministry with this gift who serves. And he's amazing. He's like the, the, the Cliff Beverage of, of the Philippines. He knows everything about computers there is to know. But beyond the computer stuff he does is just the practical stuff he does. Luggage, boats. Uh, he's a, a linguist. He's an interpreter between Tagalog and English and a couple of other Filipino dialects. Uh, making sure that tickets are paid for, making sure other things are done, making sure the, 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 the proper uh, boat people and other folks get the tips they get and the different things that take place. It's, it's just a, a, an opportunity to serve. There's another man that serves. I'm trying to think of his name. But he stands, he, he's, he's their night watchman. A lot of crime and a lot of shady things. And you're just better off if you just have somebody keeping an eye on things around the clock. This guy stands in front of the church all night. You get there in the morning and he's still there. And, and then he gets relieved by the day guy and then he goes home and sleeps. It's just ministry. <laughs> So if you want to volunteer, we'll have you stand all night. No. What I'm saying is, though, is that there can be a place for this kind of thing. And it's a biblical gift. It's a biblical gift. See? Um, and 
whatever it might be. Whatever it might be. See, in Seattle, I know of a guy that, uh, no, in Spokane. I don't remember now. <laughs> uh, he has his own landscaping business. His own landscaping business. So what does he do? He does the churchyard. He does the pastor's yard. No charge, no nothing. It's just a gift. It's just a ministry. He figures, you know, it doesn't cost him a whole lot. It's just a little bit of time. He likes doing it. And that way the pastor doesn't have to worry about mowing his lawn. Especially since he's an older pastor and his kids are grown. doesn't have, I got a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old. He does a great job mowing the lawn. I like it. But when he leaves home and the children are gone and I'm faced with mowing my own yard again, I'll have to take that church in Spokane. <laughs> or what have you. I'm just illustrating the fact that a believer can recognize particular needs. They might be earthly needs, secular needs. They might be minor things. See, it might be nothing more than just answering the mail, making trips to the post office, getting stuff mailed out and whatever. But just stuff that can get done. And it can be a sweet-smelling sacrifice before the throne of grace. Because, a believe, I mean, any unbeliever can go to the post office. But a believer can go to the post office and offer it up as a sacrifice of prayer and say, Father, thank you for letting me take the time to mail this stuff out and the pastor doesn't have to worry about it. For example, things like that. The idea of server minister, setting up tents, fixing meals, laundry, just earthly stuff. These women, and I'll, we're done here for the hour, but Luke 8, these women, they're not teaching Bible classes. They're not uh, involved in the, in the external ministry per se, but they're contributing to their needs so that Christ and these disciples can do the work they're doing. And it's needed. All right, any questions? Anything before I dismiss in prayer? Either everything made sense, in which case there's no questions, or I lost you 30 minutes ago and it's hopelessly confused, so why bother asking questions? Susie. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, any believer can serve. Any believer can do something as an act of service. But certain believers are actually gifted with the gift of service. It's like, you know, any believer can teach. If you've got doctrine and maturity and growth, you can get up and teach a Bible class. You may not have the gift of teacher, and in which case you're not going to be empowered by the Spirit in an extraordinary way to teach or to pastor and so forth. But those that have the gift... Are, have this spiritual empowerment by the Holy Spirit within them to actually not only do the service, but to do it with an edifying fruit and to do it where you have a sense of contentment and blessing for doing it because it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so the believers with that diakoneo gift uh, actually are fulfilled in using that gift in ways beyond anything other believers could do. Not, not too different from the evangelist. Any believer can give the gospel. We all can evangelize. But a person with the gift of evangelist is empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that, and he's fulfilled when he does that.
Yes, sir. Yes, all the gifts that are revealed in the New Testament. The New Testament reveals 20 gifts, nine of which were temporary, 11 are permanent. But the, each gift can have a variety of ministries. And, for instance, you can have two different pastor teachers, but they have entirely different ministries. Because one is a pastor in a local church, another one might be a chaplain in a, in a jail, another one might be an overseas missionary. Uh, you could have different pastors in different ministries. Uh, so two, two believers with a gift of service might be in widely different areas of service because they have different ministries. And then the varieties of gifts, varieties of ministries, and varieties of effects. So even two believers that have the same gift in the same ministry might have entirely different effects, workings of that gift in ministry. That's where the variety comes in. So uh, people talk about the gift of hospitality, for example. That's not a biblical gift. There's a gift of showing mercy, and in the ministry of hospitality, you have a ministry of, of showing mercy. That's a, that's a ministry of showing mercy, but the gift is showing mercy. But hospitality is not the only gift of showing mercy. There could be other ministries of showing mercy. So there are 11 gifts. Every one of us here this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have at least one gift, maybe more than one gift. But even with respect to the 11 gifts, there can be varieties of ministries. And then even within the gifts and ministries, there are a variety of effects. So it really opens up into three layers of, uh, of variables where there's any number of, of opportunities for service for the glory of Jesus Christ. Yes. You're commanded to know what your gift is in the sense that it's the will of God for you to fulfill your ministry. Paul tells Timothy, fulfill your ministry. He says, do not neglect the spiritual gift which is within you. So if you don't know what it is and you're not pursuing it, then you're in danger of neglecting your gift. Also in the sense that it's God's will for you to use your gift. That's why he gave it to you. And we are commanded to not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So we are commanded where to know what God's will is. And if, if we don't learn what our gift is, if we never use our gift, if, if uh, we never give it another thought, in a way, that's a sin of omission because... We're told not to neglect our gift, and we're told to understand what the will of the Lord is. And so, when, once you've had the teaching on spiritual gifts, and once you've grown to the point where you've, you've considered all the gifts available, you've considered what, where the Lord wants you to be, and so forth, it comes a point where you're going to know what your gift is, and you're going to embrace it, and you're going to proceed forward on, on that basis. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Of mercy, showing mercy. Yeah, the gift is showing mercy. The ministry is a hospitality ministry. Right. There are other ministries of showing mercy, but hospitality is a ministry of showing mercy. Yes, sir. Uh, the spiritual gift handouts? I think we're out of them. We can print some more. Yeah, those would be good because there's a single page chart that has all the gifts on there. Yeah, I think we're out of those. We can, we can print some more. Sunday night, 7.30, every Sunday night. All right, let's close with a word of prayer then. Father, we thank you for this class today. We thank you for your faithfulness. And I do pray for the spiritual gifts of the believers here at Austin Bible Church. I thank you that, uh, that Cliff Beveridge and, 
and my son have uh, settled on their gifts. I think also uh, uh, Casey Williams and Sean Williams and Noel O'Dell are zeroing in on their gifts. And, and other believers likewise, Father, are, are uh, examining how you've designed them, what you've blessed them with, and, and where it is that you want for them to serve in, in that capacity. I thank you for uh, our every Bible class, not just this morning in the life of Christ, but uh, the ongoing ministry in First Corinthians where we have uh, these gifts that are taught, the uh, series in Daniel where we see him and his gift in office, the, the, but especially, Father, our Sunday night class where we're training for ministry and we're training those who are anticipating uh, beginning their own ministries. And, uh, Father, I just rejoice to know that your plan is going forth, that you're going to use Austin Bible Church in this way. We pray for uh, diligence and faithfulness to be used by you in this capacity and uh, ask for your will to be accomplished. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.